Welcome to another new episode of Queering Desi. This is your host, Priya. This week, I talked to Dr. Riddy Sandal, the program coordinator of the Master's in Education in Counseling Psychology at Teachers College at Columbia University. She's also the co-founder of the Sexuality, Women, and Gender Project at Teachers College. We chat about the particular challenges faced by the South Asian LGBTQ community when it comes to taking care of our mental health. If you've ever wondered what therapy is really like or how we can start to break down the stigma of mental health in our communities, this episode is for you. So here's Dr. Sandal. Welcome to Queering Desi, Riddhi. It's great to have you. Thanks, Priya. It's nice to be here. So you are kind of the stalwart in, in the research field of mental health, especially as it relates to South Asian women and LGBTQ identities, sexual and gender minorities overall. I'm really excited to talk to you just about overall, you know, mental health. Like, what are the things that you're seeing and what are the things that you're researching and, and how the community can kind of rally around that? And then a little bit of mm-hmm. maybe how allies can, uh, can help out or how we can ask for help in our communities. Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you saying that about my being the stalwart, but, you know, research is very important to me. I'm a licensed psychologist and a faculty member as well. And the reason why I wanted to study South Asian communities, in particular South Asian LGBTQ communities, is that South Asian Americans are the fastest growing minority in the United States. But unfortunately, not much research is done on our communities. And I think even for all of us, sometimes the term South Asian can get very complicated. The term Asian American can get very complicated. You know, the South Asian sort of terminology refers to such diversity of people. So Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Sri Lanka, Nepali, and Bhutanese. And when I think of South Asian, I can be very honest, I don't necessarily think of all those countries. So I think for all those reasons, sometimes we forget about the South Asian community and the unique sort of challenges faced by the South Asian community, and we get lost in the Asian American diaspora. So I think for those reasons, um, I'm particularly drawn to understanding the needs of our community. Also, historically, like I think South Asian individuals, we don't like to go to therapy, and we don't like to talk about our needs, and we don't like to sort of outsource our mental health wellness. And a lot of our psychological needs are taken care of within our family structure, which, you know, is a mixed bag. I think there's a lot of support that can be found within a family unit. And sometimes the family unit can be the source of a lot of angst for South Asian folk, in particular South Asian LGBTQ folk. So I think for those reasons, I had really wanted to sort of uh, look at the psychological well-being of South Asian communities. Does that give you a little bit of a snapshot of my interest? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you said like three things right there that I want to follow up on. So I'm going to try to yeah. take it like piece by piece. One thing is like the general term, right? Like you said, I think it's the the hyphenated identities and especially being diaspora folks. You know, we, we try to hang on to what it is that identifies us as being from somewhere else. So Indian American mm. or South Asian American or just Asian American. And then mm. we often don't realize, I think, in all of these like hyphenated identities, like what is being left out? Like I was just talking to a coworker today about Asian Heritage Month and how I think in a lot of mainstream media, there's a like most of Asian Heritage Month is East Asian focused and there's not a lot mm. of South Asian representation and much less 
LGBTQ identities within those Asian identities, right? So when you have multiply marginalized communities, I think what fascinates me about your work is like, how do you then as a researcher begin to parse through and like, you can't like cover everything, right? So how do you parse yeah. through the different community? You can't say South Asian and think like a Nepali and an Indian are going to talk about mental health the same way, you know? So how do you, right. how do you measure these things? And then what is the, what is the goal mm-hmm. with which you're going into the, the research, right? The end goal. Right. I think right now, given that the research is like essentially in its infancy, what I'm trying to get at is get a general understanding of South Asian mental health, South Asian LGBTQ health. I'm just going to call it South Asian queer health for uh, easy terminology. Mm-hmm. You know, and you're absolutely right that there's so many differences that exist in our communities. And there are also many similarities, right? So I was talking actually to a couple of friends of mine. And we were talking about gender and sort of how we all enact our gender. And so I was talking to Pakistani women and I was like, if you see a woman, a South Asian woman, could you tell that she's Pakistani or could you tell that she's Indian? And my friends and we all were having this like very animated discussion and we all were split on the results. Like some people were like, oh yeah, I can totally tell when a woman's Pakistani as opposed to when a woman's Indian. And some of the same group was like, no, I have no idea on how to tell. So I, I think I totally agree with you. There's a lot of nuance like of differences that exist within our communities. But I also think that there are a lot of sort of shared uh, experiences. I think our experience of family, our experience of loyalty to the family, not bringing shame to the family name. I think expectation of heteronormativity that you are going to marry a gender that is I guess, the opposite of yours. You are going to have children and you're going to sort of live this very heterosexual lifestyle. I think is an expectation that's embedded in South Asian culture. I think this piece of like uh, making sure that our parents, our families are proud of us or that we don't bring any stain to the family name. I think it's a very sort of South Asian quality. I think not talking about sex and sort of removing your sexual identity and your sexual practices from your overall identity is a very South Asian practice. I don't know how it was for you, but I come from a very liberal family. But, you know, even within my family structure, it wasn't the norm to ever talk about sex and sexual practices. And what does that mean? What does desire mean? And I think that's the norm for a lot of South Asian families. And I think lastly, the expectation of wanting and having children within the heteronormative frame, I think, is also a very sort of South Asian piece. And on the flip side, I think there are a lot of differences that exist within our communities. I think religion is one way that our community sometimes is different. I think social class really differentiates our community. And then it's a double-edged sword because as South Asian people, we don't like to talk about social class, but we like to enact it. So it gets very complicated. And I also think that there is this piece of status that exists within the South Asian community, like what your status is, whether it's education, class, family background. I think all of that can also get in the mix. I totally agree with you that on one hand, it feels like, can we really put everyone under one umbrella? But I think on the other hand, once we step back and look at the shared commonalities, I think a lot of them do emerge. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, you you talked about sexuality. I, I thought of for myself just a difference for my family grappling with sexuality versus gender as well. Like sex was obviously mm-hmm. something never talked about and was only kind of understood in my parents' generation to be for the purpose of creating family, right? So linked to the other mm-hmm. point that you made. But it's also been hard, I think, in the communities that I've been a part of, including my own family unit, about not only is it about like your sexual partner and like their gender, I guess, but it's like kind of Mm -hmm. your gender identity and expression as well. And I was listening to a podcast of, it was a trans woman, a South Asian trans woman who was talking about how she didn't like the fact that there were all these like hashtags, like love is love and love wins because it's so positive and it really invisibilizes the gender, Mm. the gender part of it and like trans women, but also like Mm. for you to simplify it and say, this is about love. It kind of invisibilizes the fact that this is about sex and sensuality and who we're sleeping with. And then by extension Mm. of that, you know, the the privacy of that, of, of, is that something that matters to like my government is who's in my bedroom, you know? Right. No, absolutely. And especially given the whole sort of stigmatization of queer people in India, for example, that not only do these things have implications just on your well-being, but they have implications on your safety and on your ability to have free will and on your ability to like live a life where you feel seen as a person. I think absolutely, you're absolutely correct that it means much more sometimes for people with uh, marginalized identities. Yeah, and I think the the thing that I struggle with too when I when I read about these things or when I talk to community members, not only the differences like that you mentioned religion and class, I also experience at least India and maybe generally South Asia, but um, the, the mm. caste differences of that, right? And there's sometimes I wonder like, is that there's so much marginalization happening already of these communities? If we're doing that further in our own communities, like are we helping rather than hurting? Especially when it comes to mental health, right? If there are commonalities, if there are strategies, if there's things that we can kind of unite and and learn together. Is it is it like you know splitting hairs? I guess like it feels almost like counterintuitive to be like, well, you know, I'm contradicting myself, I guess, but it's like also mm-hmm. counterintuitive to say, hey, I have like all of these things, but also those matter. So how do you like balance that? Right, and I think that's the piece within sort of any community, and I think especially within our community too that. It just gets so complicated. And I think because of the overlays and the expectations and our own socialization into our community, sometimes I think for a lot of people, it's like being between a rock and a hard place, right? Like where your own sort of internalized sense of what it means to be South Asian mixed with your family's expectations, mixed with your desire, mixed with your sexual identity, mixed with just your well-being, like further confuses things a lot. I think that's why a lot of South Asian queer folk will report feeling very isolated that Mm. even within sort of the larger American queer scene for a lot of South Asian individuals, sort of the double whammy of being a racial minority or an ethnic minority coupled with being um, a sexual minority can have like a very different experience than would be the experience of... I'm trying to think of like Anderson Cooper, you know, right. like a rich white gay man. Right. So yeah, I think it can be a very sort of isolating space to be in sometimes when we have sort of what the research calls multiple marginalizations. What else are you seeing multiple marginalized mm. communities facing besides loneliness? Just curious. Yeah, I think, you know, time and time again, anecdotally and in research, 
like the family support piece really comes up mm. and about how like you know when you do come out what your family's reaction is really sort of uh, impacts your own sense of well-being mm. and i think sort of the the cliche narrative for a lot of south asian queer people is that you know they feel the most rejection from their families Hmm. and it's a very complicated rejection right because i i would like to believe that families love their kids and they love their gay kids and i think oftentimes the rejection is couched under well i don't want things to be hard for you or i don't want people to think poorly of you and i think it's also couched under oh now what will people say hmm. and that's the last piece but what will people say what will people think how will our community react i think it's unique to south asian people or i would say larger also to asian american people mm-hmm. because we come from very collectivistic cultures i mean just think about the fact that in our culture everyone is auntie and everyone is uncle right i mean mm-hmm. the fact that we make everyone family regardless of how we know them or not know them sort of speaks to the collectivistic uh, bent of our community and i think for a lot of south asian families it's also very fraught for the family right because on one hand you want to support your kid uh, regardless of your own homophobia i think i would like to believe that families want to love their kid but on the other hand you also really worried about what people will say and i think that piece you don't see it in the same way in white families i do think you see it in very religious conservative white families the same piece of what will the church say what will my mm. friends say like for example you see it in mormonism or people who practice the lds religion but in south asia that is our in south asian communities that is sort of the first thing that comes to mind so how do you begin to to break this down you do the research you get a lay of the land yeah. how do you start to like shift that it means a golden question right I don't, there's no answer to this yeah. but like how do you begin to shift the conversation and and especially around mental health when you when you're not only not talking about sexuality and gender and all these things you're also yeah. not talking about mental health or mental illness as something that's real and experienced and and needs to be addressed yeah I think the first thing that we all can do as South Asian queer folk or as South Asian allies is to just destigmatize it, right? So how I destigmatize it in my personal life, and I'll talk about it in my professional life a little bit later, is if I'm in therapy and I've been in therapy on and off, you know, just for my keeping up with my own sort of mental psychological well-being, I talk about it. Like I don't necessarily talk about what I'm in therapy for. But you know if someone was like oh how are you doing I'll be like oh I'm doing well and you know I recently started seeing a therapist and I'll just casually mention it. Hmm. And I think one way of like the way we can do some advocacy is to like normalize therapy. Hmm. And I think oftentimes with therapy there's so much like shame associated with it that I don't want to tell anyone I'm in therapy, I don't want to ask anyone for a referral of a therapist. and i think that's further how we perpetuate the stigma so i think i i tell all everyone so even in so in professionally with my students too i'll mention if i have if at that time i was seeking care i'll be like oh you know i'm seeking therapy and this is what my experience has been because once again i just want to normalize it and i think that's one way that we can break down the barriers to therapy or well-being i also think the other way that we do get a lot of support in our community is from our community And I think this doesn't mean that to get psychological support, you have to go to a 
social worker or a psychologist, I think you can seek it in your family and friends as well. So I think for people who are seeking that support from their community, it's very important to applaud them for like reaching out, you know, and to say good for you for like talking to me about this. Thank you for sharing this with me. I think those small, small things really go a long way in sort of making our community more open to the process of therapy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I just talking about therapy in my own life, I think that's a great point. Like when you're when you're in therapy to like talk about it or to say like I've had to say multiple times, like setting meetings or calls, like I tell people, oh, I can't. I got to go to therapy. And I try to like say that. Mm -hmm. But but it's interesting that you say that as like an actual act of and I'm like, oh, that that for me to hide that or for me to not say it also would be a certain decision. Right. But I also think when I do mention that there is like especially among South Asian folks, queer or not, there's like a reaction that happens. What do you think are like the top myths that South Asians have about therapy and how can we like start to break them down in this conversation? (laughs) Sure. I think this number one myth is that you're crazy. I didn't realize you were crazy. I didn't realize something was going on with you. Something very drastic was going on with you. Because I think a lot of South Asian people believe that you seek therapy when and I use the word crazy with intention because I think there is a, a pejorative mm. moment that happens for the person who hears that you're in therapy. Mm. It's somewhere that you're, yes, you're out of control, right. right? That your well-being is like you can't take care of yourself. I think that leads into the second piece, which I think goes on for people, is that you're weak. Mm. Because if you were strong and you could cope with this, you would not have to seek it elsewhere. And I think third piece, and I don't know, I don't have much data to back this up, the third piece of it, which I think is the piece of becoming too westernized. Mm. And I wonder if that happens for some people that, oh my God, you've really become an American, now you seek help. Because as someone who's grown up in India and who visits India every year, I do think that therapy is still seen as a Western or maybe a rich luxury. Mm. And not something that the common person wants, desires, or seeks. So I would say those would be the three top three things, at least right now, that come to my mind. Yeah, definitely. And I think the other piece for me, especially, you know, when I was in school to, to in mental health, like, I think a lot of people, just South Asian or not, don't understand what therapy is and my biggest like pointer to them is like go to therapy and you'll find out mm-hmm. but I think the hardest mm-hmm. part about talking to folks that haven't been to therapy is trying to explain to them what therapy right. is because it's not the same for anybody it's going to be different for everybody but they don't know what to expect like when they walk in like there's a fear right. there's a stranger you know there's all these norms it's kind of and then you don't know it's like go and you'll find out like a you know like a box of chocolates you just open it and figure out what, what's right. inside Right. And I think there's also a piece where, unfortunately, Western counseling or Western way of doing counseling is not a good match for our community. Mm. You know, I think we do have a piece where we, and at least this is true for me, and I think this is also supported in a little bit of the research, is that for some Asian, Asian American, South Asian folk, they want a little bit more directiveness in therapy. They want a little bit more activity or they want the therapist not to be this blank slate, blank wall. And they want the therapist to truly like, you know, engage with them. And I think sometimes Western counseling and therapy processes have been so sort of 
like they haven't adapted with the times, mm. you know, and it's been a one one size fits all model. So oftentimes, you know, when I have sought care, like it takes me a while, like I'm very particular. And I think because of my background, I also know what, what good therapy is and what good therapy isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there is a piece where I'm very disappointed and some therapists that I meet who have no idea on how to like work with me as a South Asian queer woman or who, who don't know how to like react or how to um, how to understand my lived experience, you know? So I think, that it, I think it's a two-way street is basically what I'm trying to say. Absolutely, I think there's a complete lack of awareness sometimes of what therapy is. And I think there's a complete lack of awareness of what South Asian clients need. Do you think that's changing? Because I felt like when I was in school, I felt like there was some some effort in some areas and mm-hmm. in so, certain institutions to do that. And I feel like yeah. that it wasn't as widespread maybe as, as it should have been, but I felt like there was movement towards that. Do you think that's happening? I think so. I would like to believe that there is happening. I think certain uh, schools and training programs are much more intentional about talking about the need for adapting therapy to your client. And unfortunately, I'm, I don't know what, like, well, I do know. I think there's some places which are not multicultural, but therapy has not changed in the same way, mm. you know? So I think, yeah, I, I would like to believe that things are changing. I also think that, well, I have a bias that I think that, uh, you know, oftentimes it takes a person of color to really nuance and change the way they provide care to a person of color. Mm. So I think that also, like, sort of adds into the mix. Having said that, I don't, I'm not trying to say that if you're white, you can't be a multicultural therapist. I think sometimes people of color are a little bit more attuned uh, to the experiences of other racial minorities. Yeah. And then you add you add to that, you know, the, the queer identity or the sexual or gender yeah. minority identity. I think there's also like a trust factor that happens for South Asian folks yeah. with therapy of like, you know, I for myself, like went to a white cis male therapist for a long time and and very recently switched to a south asian woman and i find like mm-hmm. a very different dynamic mostly i think because of their training and their styles but also mm-hmm. there is like a there is like a trust and like a language and like an understanding mm-hmm. that happens and i think that's also there's also an undercurrent of that within the south asian lgbt community i feel like there's a lot of my friends who are becoming social workers becoming therapists because they know mm-hmm. that like if they went through such and such ordeal that they then will have kind of some lens of understanding. And then there's a trust. Like if you went through it as a therapist or you have a certain lived experience that I can assume, you know, then mm. then I can go to you and expect a certain level of understanding. Absolutely. I think, yes. And, you know, there's also some research sometimes to suggest that South Asian people, at least like this is old research, I don't know, don't want to see a South Asian therapist really? because... You know, coming back to the piece of feeling stigmatized and feeling shamed and like not talking about your family's business to your community. I think for some people, like not even it's not explicit, but like implicitly that that fear gets aroused. Do you know someone that I know? Would you tell someone? At least in India, like that's the biggest sort of reason why people don't seek care is because they're very afraid that their confidentiality would be breached. 
Yeah, that's true. That's actually interesting. When you said that, I was kind of surprised. And then I, I thought back to, we talked to a few episodes ago, uh, Aruna from, from Daisy Rainbow Parents, and she was saying this a similar thing for family support, where she gets a lot of like cultural specific, um, you know, inquiries from parents wanting to talk to like other parents in the same, you know, region or language or yeah. whatever. But then there is also that sense of like, some people are like, no, anyone but that, because if you, the right. more narrow you go with that, like the more chances there are of, again, someone finding out right right and i think that's the piece where people are just fearful you know and i think sometimes collectivistic cultures or any culture for that matter like you know um, there's a tendency for people to gossip and there's a tendency for word to be spread and i think we all are just a little wary of that yeah yeah and i think also like when i talk about like i work in media and i have to it's been an interesting shift for me in the last year to to take some time to understand for myself what self-care is and when i talk Mm -hmm. about self-care with friends south asian or not queer or not there is sometimes they're like oh yeah i totally get it and then there's sometimes like a like what is that that's like a new age kind of term and it's almost like it's almost way too mainstream and and kind of used too much and maybe incorrectly at times but there's this or lack of understanding i think around self-care and what it means and how true that can be to not only south asian queer folks but also when you're Mm. dealing with mental health stuff like what does self-care mean and how does that like wrap around the idea of therapy or family support or like what is it that you can do for yourself and what does that mean i think there's a, a little i think there's a little lack of understanding for that and i think it's also looked it's looked at a little weirdly as like a new age or like even a western thing yeah Right, I think because, you know, in our communities, putting yourself first is selfish, right? Or putting your needs first, especially now. Actually, I should nuance that further. I think for South Asian gender minorities, especially women, I think our needs and our desires and our sort of um, protection of ourselves. I mean, you know, we are always taught to put the needs of others first. Hmm. So I think also then the self-care piece becomes very difficult, you know, and I think that's something we share with other women of color. Like, you know, black women have the same sort of struggle. Latinx women have the same struggle about how do I put my needs first without feeling selfish? Hmm. And I think that's such a, it's a difficult struggle, you know, because in some way, shape or form, and sometimes explicit and sometimes not, we are always told that our core identity is to serve others, whether it be our parents, whether it be a husband, whether it be our siblings, whether it be our children, that somehow our the piece of nurturance has to be integrated into our sense of self. And that nurturance means putting the needs of others before yours. You know, like if you think back to like Bollywood, like, you know, sort of the quintessential mother was the one who was like not eating so her child could eat, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like sort of the cliche, like she would sacrifice on every level for her kid. And I think that sort of just gets ingrained into our sort of psyche at such a young age as women. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting that you brought up like pop culture and that too. I think like to bring it full circle, like when you, when you talk about, mental health and and the the stereotypes and socialization that happens with how we think about it and how we we perceive our gender roles to be or our roles as children as whatever it is to be mm. how do you then start to as as a LGBTQ community member yourself or as an ally start to have mm. 
the conversations that are needed or like what like what are strategies like how can we start to break down these stigmas like can we how do we where does it start what are your general like thoughts about that yeah i think first is to name it right so we've talked about that like i think just by naming like these are things that our community struggles with we struggle with empowerment of women we struggle with heterosexism or homophobia we struggle with transphobia and that we really value and really in some ways worship heteronormative heterosexual behavior like you know in our culture that's very entrenched i think we just all have to name it right and then many a times like i catch myself also like getting stuck in my socialization so for example this doesn't happen much anymore but if i met a south asian woman and she expressed to me in our conversation that she doesn't want to have any kids there used to be a time where I'd be like, wow, like, you know, what's wrong right. with you? Like, what happened in your life that you don't desire children anymore? Right. Because, you know, in some ways we've been socialized to believe that the role of a woman is to want to be a mother mm-hmm. and desire it intensely, you know? Uh, and I think so just to name it, to catch yourself when you do it. And thirdly is to call out or call in, I don't know, whatever language you want to say. But like not tolerate it when it happens in your life. You know, today I was like, I was on Instagram and someone had put up, you know, this like quote system, like Mm. the field. And they said, no response is a response. And it is the most powerful one of of all. (laughs) And I thought about that. I was like, well, that's kind of true. Like the many times when I'm within a South Asian community space, a non-queer space, and someone says something very like, heterosexist and there have been times in the past where I'm just like I'm so fatigued like I can't deal with this Mm -hmm. so I just let it slide you know but I think as allies and as community members unfortunately we don't have the luxury of being complacent yeah when it comes to microaggressions like I'm split right because the activist part of me wants to say that when microaggressions happen or when someone says something misogynistic or patriarchal and you want to you want to call it out there is like this thing of like, why is the burden of representation on that person? Yeah. If you're the only queer person in that South Asian non-queer space, why is it on you? Yeah. And you you are right to be fatigued, right? But then there's also yeah. this activist side of me that's like, no, you must, you know, you you have yeah. to be the one. And ha- like, and I think that's where community comes in or queer community comes in is because right. the, the greater the number of visible folks in that room, the less the burden comes on each person. But I think that still happens with microaggressions. It can happen within our families. It can happen within our friend circles that are not queer. You know, when, h- how often are you going to do it? And I think the second piece of that for me sometimes is language, like the language that I would use to address that within my family unit here would be different than if I was on the phone with like a, an uncle from India and they say like, how am I going to like say something in Hindi or Punjabi and find words? And then at that point, is it worth it? Like, what are you trying to change minds for? And so part of me hesitates when when language becomes a part of like addressing mm. microaggressions like in the moment as well. Yeah. No, I agree. I think there's a piece where in, a lot of, in our culture, sometimes the language just doesn't exist. Yeah, and that is a struggle. And I think coming back to the early thing that you were saying, yes, that's why we need a community. And I think that's why we need the allies to really sort of help us carry the burden of representation, you know, so that when we are too tired and too fatigued and too unsafe to like call out behavior, that we can rely on straight ally or a cis ally or, you know, whatever sort of 
marginalization you're feeling in that moment to like really sort of help us, you know, in that. Yeah. And I think for me, like kind of even circling back to like the Bollywood piece, like I think for me growing up, what was hard was not only not having that community, but was not having media representation of these things like we I will go back I say all the time I go back and watch these like old Bollywood movies that I grew up loving and I watch them now and I'm appalled like I can't get through it it is so misogynistic and sexist and and it's like you know these things like I'm sure it's like not shocking to anyone to be like yep Bollywood is you know but growing up you have no idea you don't have the words you don't have the perception to to name it you don't know that it feels like wrong for a reason but it's also this lack of I think even in the modern age you see at least in bollywood like the tropes of gay folks or or trans people are only you know sex workers or hijras or jokes you know on the side and so i think it's hard even now south asian representation in american media even you're not seeing like a queer or a trans or any other kind of multiple minority marginalization happening in in media or invisibility and i i think for me i really really wish and i hope that this will change but i had wished that I would not only have allies and community, but something or someone to point to and say, hey, that like that's what I'm feeling or that's why it's wrong or, you know, something else to kind of right. point to. Right. Absolutely. That, you know, that not only are we visible within our allies and our community, but that we are visible within the larger context as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, what's next for you on the research slate? Like, what are you interested in finding out yeah. within these communities? So, you know, actually, so this semester, I stepped away a little bit from the South Asian piece. Mm. And we've done some research on um, gay men and straight women who use dating apps Mm. and how the use of a dating app impacts the way you feel about yourself. Mm. Because, as you know, dating apps are a hotbed of body discrimination and people feeling crappy about the way they look. Mm because all the rejection and the interest is based on your physical self. So we are trying to understand how that sort of experience impacts your body self-esteem, your way, your general general well-being. And it's really interesting research. So I'm excited about that. And I think what's next on the horizon, and I have to give it some thought this summer, is that I would love to do some research in India on LGBTQ folk in India. I think India... It's a completely different experience than being gay and South Asian in America. And I would love to sort of, I don't have a really formalized uh, research idea yet, but I wanted to maybe like think about doing some like work with parents of LGBTQ people in India, something where we can get to that community piece, you know, and what's having, what's happening for queer folk in India. Mm. Sounds super interesting. Um, do you want to plug Sexuality, Women, and Gender Project and, and tell us a little bit? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I'm part of a collective here at Teachers College. Dr. Melly Brewster, Aurelie Aitman, and I founded the Sexuality, Women, and Gender Project at Teachers College. And the goal of this project is to educate, outreach, and make visible the experiences of LGBTQ folk and women in particularly in the context of psychology and education. So at Teachers College, we found that a lot of work was being done around the experience of racial minorities in psychology and education. But when it came to gender minorities and sexual minorities, that, you know, the research was lacking. So we put together a certificate program that you can do to enhance your knowledge of these topics. 
We just finished a project on sexual health education in New York City schools and what is being done in the schools and how we can be more comprehensive in our approach to sex ed. So it's a very sort of exciting time. Like we had a talk a year ago on menstruation and, you know, how do we talk about menstruation in a destigmatizing way? Because, I mean, speaking of, like, stigma, like, we can have a whole hour conversation about what it means to be on your period as a woman and how much stigma you feel within our South Asian community, right? And once again, like, sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but, like, menstruation is something we don't talk about in our community at all. And I think that's another way where our community is so confusing because we value motherhood on such an extreme way like I mean speaking of pop culture the woman the minute a married woman gets pregnant like you would think that she's won the lottery right and I say married because if she's unmarried then it's not a good thing yeah. so that's right when she's married and she's pregnant with a katta arm and the injury yeah. and everything is being brought to her yeah. but I have never heard actually I've seen a lot of Hindi movies I've never heard any Hindi movie talk about menstruation Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting. That's I never got the talk. It was like it was just a thing that happened. And like you it's surprising to me because it's and, and I I think it's confusing and surprising to me because it's so intertwined with religion or it can be because there is yeah. the whole like you can't go here when you're on your period. And you can't go there. And like as a young teen who's like on the brink of puberty, you have no idea what that means. And you're like being banished right. from all these. Like, so I think there's like a religion piece to it, too. And it's hard to like sparse out what's culture and what's religion. And like it went because when it gets to religion, then people get really touchy about it. And oh, well, that's just the way it's, it is. You know, you're not supposed to go to the temple when you're on your period or you're not. supposed, And that's just the way it is because because religious tradition like i don't know like mm-hmm. the difference between cultural norm and, and religious tradition or, or what is perceived to be correct kind of becomes so much more complicated around menstruation at least in my experience right i totally agree and i think it'd be so interesting right speaking of research projects to actually talk to a whole range of women in india or in the u.s like our grandmothers our mothers and us and then maybe like a 13 year old like a young mm. emerging adult about how they feel about their period yeah. and what does it mean to them and like what does it like come with and like yeah. what have they learned about it like how fascinating would that be oh my god maybe absolutely. that should be something we do yeah, yeah i like that let's go to india and do that too <laughs> that's right <laughs> um yeah. where can folks get more information about sexuality women and gender project yeah so if you go to swgproject.org you will get all the information you need for our project. And I really appreciate you giving me the moment to plug it. Yeah, you guys do some amazing events when I was at, at TC, like uh, film screenings and panel discussions and, and just things that people don't talk about, both within the context of psychology and mental health um, in education, but also just in general, being able to be like, have the language. I think the biggest thing for me, both personally and, and in that educational setting was like, learning the oppressive structures and like also learning Uh, to name them and being like oh that's why it feels this way or that and so yeah i I love what swg does and i love the events and so i highly highly recommend it to folks great thank you priya yeah sure so thank you so much for being on and i really appreciated having you great thank you so much i really enjoyed speaking with you today as well thank you for listening to the latest episode of queering daisy If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes to help us spread the word and make sure you get the latest episodes right to your phone every Wednesday.
If you have any questions, comments, feedback, or know someone who should be featured on Queering Daisy, please drop us an email. Thanks again for listening. 